Welcome to the XY Advisor Podcast, a global community of financial advisors sharing and learning with one another to drive the positive evolution of financial advice. To get involved, go to xyadvisor.com or simply download the XY Advisor app. As the financial advice landscape changes, it's important to embrace new technology to enhance the way you run your business. With change comes your chance to use advanced technology, reshape your client experience and see wealth differently. NetWealth is here to support you on this journey by providing you market-leading technology, excellent customer support, and expertise to help your business thrive. See wealth differently. Visit netwealth.com.au to learn more about how NetWealth can support you. Welcome back to the XY Advisor Podcast. I'm Fraser Jack, and today we are at episode two in our series on technology and innovation. We're talking about tech trends, all sorts of things from, you know, the, the, the concept around a lot of millennials these days were brought up as digital natives, knowing nothing else. Uh, we, we tackle a few conversations around the, the use of data and structuring data. We also look at things like, um, you know, the what's at the center of your business strategy and, and how the client experience has become a term that we just instantly go to these days. So let's dive into this episode. Uh, please welcome our panel of guests. Welcome back to this episode, Patrick. Great to be back. Thank you for coming along. We're talking about tech trends and all sorts of things. Let's, let's kick off the uh, conversation with the the concept around uh, the trend of the being the digital native or uh, understanding that, that some humans these days have never grown up in an analog world. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, I'm I once heard it described as with my particular generation, so I am 37, um, <laughs> and uh, I am old enough to have actually used the Dewey Decimal System. <laughs> so, um, you know, but still I, I spent all of my years word processing through school and, um, you know, communicating online and, and stuff like that. So, you know, maybe we're in the, a little bit of a sweet spot with the divide. Uh, maybe some of the younger people uh, listening might just think, no, you're already too old. You're already, uh, <laughs> yeah, <and laughs> you're already out of who, date, mate. Those people who don't know what the Decimal system is, it was pre-Google, I guess, is a good way of putting it. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, you know, you had to like look up stuff and then you'd get there and the result that you were after just wasn't there. Yep. It was really exciting to use. <laughs> yep, fantastic. Um, but look, on, on that on that point though, um, the it's not just technology that's changed. It's how things have been democratised along the way. Um, so you know, the, there's technology and, yes, sure, everybody's expecting to, for things to be tech-friendly and tech-savvy. And um, there's an old Stanford study that we refer to a lot of the time in our websites business in terms of the impact having a good website has on trust um, and how much of the what we see online is really built around trust. And it's a really important thing when we're thinking about tech trends or how to engage with people because we've got to think about who they trust. And you know, typically, they already trust their industry super fund where you know, they, uh, they signed up to their first job, probably got put in an industry super fund. The money's already there. It hasn't apparently been stolen in the, you know, first 10 years of my working life. I probably already trust them to maybe not necessarily do best by me, but not to rip me off. Um, you know, the other people that they trust are, you know, large institutions like Google. We all, not all of us, but most of us, Trust Google pretty implicitly. You might not trust it enough to put a microphone in your home when you really think about it, but you've also probably got a microphone in your pocket most of the time and you trust it enough to do that um, or you trust it enough to let it know where you are a lot of the time. And it might not be Google, it might be Apple or it might be Amazon or whomever. Um, but there's a lot of trust that goes into that. So for them to build on that is pretty easy. For us to build on that as financial advisors, as a comparison, can be pretty hard, um, and that's where um, that's where something I think has really shifted. Um, with the the third party being there, um, is going beyond the companies into the influencers, and I mean that's just a fancy name, um, but there's been influencers in you know people who have been writing editorials for many years or who are authors of books before you know you could become an influencer uh, perhaps much more quickly than you used to but the concept's the same 
Um, and that's a real shift because people will trust those influencers more than they'll trust a financial advisor, for example, especially post-Royal Commission, um, you know, there's, you know, which did a lot of damage along the way. You know, there's just so many opportunities for people to go and source stuff digitally and there's so many other opportunities for people to trust groups that aren't a, you know, trusted advisor who works at the strip mall that's three blocks away, which may have been the case a long time ago, but that's not the case anymore. Yeah, and like, like you mentioned, the, the trust in websites, the trust in that, um, how that the look and feel and um, the, the value they get out of that website, which is often, as you as you said previously, quite simple. Um, but also around that, um, you know, uh, t- over time, uh, I, I sort of feel that the trust comes in in when it come on when I'm thinking of technology trends for anybody who's there, as you mentioned, as interest, interested super fund, they've been there for 20 years and nothing went wrong. Therefore, I mm. trust. Uh, mm. and, and same could be said for you know, websites and technology. If it's if it's used and it's not the links aren't breaking and it's worked, it feels like I can trust it already. Mm. Um, if I'm if I'm clicking around and the and the, and the pages work, or or if I can spend some time on the website and watch some of the videos, yeah. Or if it's just on obviously been around for several years, or you know where where we often do this work in, when we're working on websites in particular is to really try and encourage practices to build the bridge from the digital to the analog so when you you are using the website and people are clicking around hopefully you've got some very human faces on there that are, aren't from stock photo libraries but that are actually of you and your team and a meeting with hopefully real people that are real clients and then that helps to to take that digital trust and turn it into sort of analog trust so to yep. speak, and that's something that we can do that that those bigger institutions or influencers or whatever can't. Absolutely. Now, um, I want to talk to you about this because you do a lot of work with websites. Um, the concept or the newish concept of doing reviews, the old Google review or the – it used to be called the testimonial. I'm not sure I like, I mm. like that name too much because it just implies <laughs> that it's going to say nice things, whereas a view has a possibility of being a bad review. Um, t- tell us about how reviews are being used um, these days as, an, as a sort of a trend. Um, well – they're now getting easy to use, which is why people are using them. Um, they've been around for quite a while now, um, and you know, a little bit like so many things, you know, you don't need to believe in Google reviews for Google reviews to believe in you. <laughs> and you know, you can be rated whether or not you've registered your business in Google reviews. Somebody can just go in and say, you know what, ABC Financial Planning is here. I'm going to put a pin. I'm going to say it's here, and they suck. And one star, and here's all the reasons why we can't stand them. Um, so you can absolutely get negatively reviewed. Um, one thing that I find really interesting in this space, if you're a little bit cautious about going into that, at last I checked, the most trusted review value is not five stars across the board, it's 4.2. So if you get a couple of fours in there, or even the very occasional one star, that's actually good because it makes you look more legitimate than 55 star reviews. Um, but it, look, it's a very strong trend um, and it's really good for search engine optimization, but it's even better for building trust. And you hear me talk about trust a lot and the um, the element that's in there is, you know what, I know that, as you say, it could be bad. I know those people are real. Um, one thing when, uh, if you integrate these review systems properly, whether it's done through Facebook or Google or something else, um, we do a lot with Google reviews in particular and that's what I typically recommend. Um, the tool that we have automatically imports the uh, name from what they've said that they're happy for Google to share, their profile pic if they've uploaded a profile pic to Google, um, and um, cheekily ours also filter out the five-star reviews. You can still give, sorry, filter in only five-star reviews, I should say. Um, So somebody may still give you a one-star review. That will still change the overall rating, and there's nothing that can be done about that, but we don't necessarily uh, showcase anything under five stars on the website. Um, but regardless of how you're doing it, you should absolutely be capturing Google reviews. And then when you've got them, you should be showcasing them on your website in particular um, and, and in any other place you really can. Um, you know, I was watching uh, Space Force a few months ago and when they couldn't find a plumber for Space Force, they end up starting to interview people based on their Google reviews. And, you know, when you start seeing those things just, eke into pop culture. Um, I'm not saying it's an authority, but like pop culture are, you know, really making fun of how people just make decisions based off five-star Google reviews. Um, And, you know, it's when we're in a trust-based business like ours, 
it's too important to pass up. Yeah, I love the I love the the words you use there about don't you don't have to believe in Google reviews, but Google has to believe in you. Mm-hmm. But uh, that's a really uh, that's really really good. Now, t- tell us about um, uh, structuring data because I think this has been a big trend over the last few years. The idea of we had all this unstructured data and filing cabinets and and words and file mm-hmm. notes and things, um, and then we've seen this trend towards st- having structured data. How important is that? It'll become increasingly important, but I think that many of our listeners may be in a similar boat to I am where they've heard a lot of stuff about data, but they don't really see what it actually means to them. And it is one of those things where, yeah, sure, it might well change the world and big data uh, probably has changed the world. Uh, Literally, if you think about elections and whatnot, it has. Um, But has it changed our financial planning world, especially for those of us who are in smaller practices? Um, Then, you know, maybe not. Um, So there's there's still a lot to come, I think, um, but it really starts needing to get in, down to that level. And this is where things with it, like AI will come along over time where it can say, you know what, just give me your data. Don't even ask me anything. Just give me your data and I'm just going to infer what I can. And here's some inferences I've got, which just don't require a huge amount of investment, a huge amount of uh, diligence in terms of making sure your data is useful. Uh, it'll eventually one day get to that point. But we're a long way away from that. Where, where data can be helpful is certainly at the licensee level where you know they are looking at larger groups. They've got larger sources of data, so it can be very helpful for, for them at their level of scale. Um, and you know they're trying to manage things like compliance as opposed to informing better business decisions. Uh, the other thing that can start to happen is when you've got a, a good tool that's got good data in it, you can start to build rule sets. So, for example, um, Nod as a as a group, um, you know, specialize in making it really easy to build rule sets to streamline your advice generation. Um, I think that's really cool, and it's something I wish I had when I was a power planner. Um, and whilst it's not a tool I use too often with my clients at the moment, um, yeah, that kind of thinking is something that you can enable if you've got good data. So, is there value in data? Absolutely. Is their value and data just from a business management perspective or being able to build rule sets in your business as you start to implementing, uh, you know, uh, simple programming options. And that's uh, there's a tool a term for this called no-code solutions. Um, then you, know, you can start to say, hey, if this, do that. Um, and you can do that when you've got data. They're the sorts of wins I'm seeing now. Uh, we do a lot of this. We do a lot of coding in, at our end, um, and we've been doing a lot of that stuff for years where if we've got good data, we can uh, automate output um, and we can build that based on, on what we know. So to give you an example, we might have a marketing document that we generate from your CRM, but because we've used code in it and we know what type of category the client is, what gender they are, what age they are, what their marital status is, we tailor the output based on those four factors so that the imagery that we use speaks to those people or the terminology that we have speaks to those people. I'm seeing those sorts of wins in the short term and I think there's more to come, but we're a fair way away from seeing, you know, big data hitting financial planning. Fantastic. And Pep, before we go, I just wanted to get your ideas on the uh, the, the future of sort of face-to-face versus online meetings as a, as a trend. Oh, I think they're just going to become ambivalent. You know, you, you'll just have meetings and you won't really think about whether they're one type or another. I mean, that's how... That's how I've been running um, for the last couple of years. Um, and, you know, I started up a business not long before COVID hit, maybe not the best timing. Um, but, you know, that's just how things are. Um, so once, you know, I think most business, I think most businesses would already be at the point where they're very comfortable doing either. Not all clients are at the point where they're very comfortable doing either, but that'll come with time. Um, I know that, um, you know, I use a couple of my um, fairly tech unsavvy friends, um, and my wife is not particularly tech savvy. Uh, and you know, she was uh, you know saying, "Oh, I've got a Zoom. You use Zoom all the time. I don't know how to do this thing. You know, can you step me through it?" And I'm like, "You do not need me to step you through it. Just just go and try. Uh, and by all means, call me if you have a problem." And she was like, "Oh, that wasn't what I thought it was going to be." Um, and yeah, as that happens with wider and wider sections of the population where they're just forced to, yeah, we j- we'll just stop caring. The things that will start changing perhaps will be some of the tools that we use. 
for those people who have you know installed big screens in their practices 10 years ago so that they could present things via powerpoint or via you know pdf on the screen or something like that that'll change um Oh, sorry, for those groups, there won't be a lot of change because whilst it'll be a different physical layout, the process won't change much. For the advisors that have never had a big screen in the, their office, they've always been printing stuff out and speaking to the printouts, that'll feel a little bit different. And some of the tools that used to work well printed maybe don't work well so well digitally. Um, for example, well, my typical recommendation for an SOA uh, is to actually print it out in landscape. Um, if you've got a design that can work with that, because in part it presents better on a screen. There's lots of other reasons and, you know, other things present better in landscape, but you can present it better on a screen. And when 50% of your meetings or whatever the clients feel like will be on Zoom, um, you know, you've got to start making some of those decisions or, you know, the PowerPoints that you might have had that worked well um, for some things might need to be adapted more for, you know, that context. Yeah, fantastic. Some great tips there. Uh, Patrick, thanks so much for coming on to this episode. We look forward to catching you in the next one. Until next time. Welcome back, Haley. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. Now, today we're talking about uh, technology trends. Uh, and obviously this is, um, this is well, you know, I think you've, you you guys are leading the way, certainly when it comes to a lot of the trends, when it comes to, um, uh, you know, especially in that communication space. In the idea that, uh, in the idea, and obviously you've mentioned in the previous episode that some of your some of your clients are, you know, post only or may have communication challenges. But talk to us about how you've found, you know, the the idea now that a lot of people are so used to technology, they've now moved from being post only towards technology. Yeah, look, it's been a huge benefit to our business being that we have so many clients. It's It makes it easier for both sides when they do engage with using technology throughout our advice process. Um, that being said, when, when we face challenges with product providers in the space of technology, clients do get a little frustrated because they're on top of tech. They're, they know they can do a digital signature or they know that they can do two-factor authentication. So when you know, a beneficiary nomination form gets knocked back for some basic reason, they think it's ludicrous. So I think it's 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 great that we've got people so advanced now. And I, I feel as an industry, we probably feel we've come a long way in the last couple of years, but we've really innovated things that are just, they're old concepts. You know, the concept of the signature being a secure way to identify someone like it's it's known that that's it's just not a legitimate way to to identify you, anyone can copy a signature I, w- I would suggest that in this world of technology where people know they can confirm who they are via a selfie on their phone why why aren't we as an industry innovating that way in, in new ways to confirm someone's identity yeah, it's interesting isn't it because the trend uh, the trend is is you know you're right and and I think uh, I think I've actually heard Peter say this more than any other ind- more than any other industry surely if financial services you know with the with the money it has behind it should be able to get its act together in this space absolutely uh, having said that we've got a lot of clients that aren't fully there yet they're not you know they've got an iPad but they don't know really what to do with it they've got an email address but they never check it we've really used this as an opportunity to educate people because it does benefit us um, and it does benefit the client. So we found some great resources that are actually provided by the Australian government. There's one called Be Connected. Highly encourage advisors to share this with their clients. It provides some great resources and help for elderly Australians or or anyone that struggles with technology on how to use it. Uh, We ran a, a webinar on this and noticed a huge improvement with clients that weren't engaging via technology had started to. And it's a journey. It, you can't expect people that have done things one way to just completely change overnight. But if you show them that this is the only way we will communicate with you, they will come to the party. They've got the time if they're retired or don't have much else going on. So it's, it's of a benefit to both of us. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because um, you often hear that. Uh, well, what if my clients prefer, you know, paper, uh, or prefer the old way, or prefer the handshake? But uh, like you said, you know, if that's if that's the way you do it, uh, and you show them that way, I think I think there's a little bit, of, you know, there's obviously a bit of fear around that the first time you do anything. Understandably, I can appreciate for some people that aren't if the technology is new to them, you would be afraid of it. In our latest webinar, we we spoke about cybersecurity and we encouraged people to set up password managers. For a lot of our clients, they've never heard of that that is a, a thing before. 
whereas us in business, we know it's our only way to protect our passwords. So sharing something basic like that helps clients gain that confidence in an area that they can be quite uncertain. Yeah. Now, uh, now you mentioned the webinar there and, uh, you know, that's obviously how I think it's a bit of a technology trend as well. You know, you're running a webinar for your existing clients. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. So we have Caboodle Question Time. Uh, We run it every, I think it's every two months now. We were doing it quarterly, but we just had, we really did have great engagement with it. So uh, we found that not just covering off on financial stuff made a difference as well. As I said, talking about cybersecurity, things like that, it made a difference. Um, And we had really great engagement. And through lockdown, we ran trivia nights for our clients. And that was fantastic. It really, for the team, it lifted the mood because we were so surprised that clients would want to do a trivia night with their financial advisor. But it really built a connection between us and our clients and people that you wouldn't expect to sign on to our webinar, they did. Yep, amazing. Now, uh, speaking of of trends, uh, you guys have been working remotely for quite some time uh, and you work with clients all around the country. You know, I think gone are the days when uh, advisors or planners have to work with a with a local group of uh, clients that, are, that live near them. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And when a new portfolio comes on, we do, there's probably 2% of clients that have that hesitancy. And I will happily say to them, if this doesn't suit you, I can point you in the direction of 10 advisors that will look after you. Uh, but our onboarding process is, is quite engaging for people and encourages them to really lean into the process. And they see that the technology is just as good as, and it, it also shows them that they have more engagement with us. If I don't have to travel two hours to see you, I can see you more often. Um, I often have people video call me to chat about stuff as opposed to phone call me. And they'll have a piece of paper in front of them and they flip the camera around, which bit do I sign? Perfect. I've just confirmed the form I'm getting back is now going to be correct. I don't have to send it back 14 times with a sign here and all that sort of thing. So it definitely makes the process much easier. I think there's such an opportunity for product providers in this space. Um, As advisors, we work alongside them, but I really think they've got the money to step up the, the administration side of things. Uh, We, for beneficiary nomination forms, we put together a video that really just walks clients through how to complete the form because we constantly got knockbacks from product providers over tiny little things. It was so frustrating. So we just literally walk through video, fill in here, complete this, make sure this doesn't say that. And now we don't get any issues with the Ben Nom forms. I honestly think the product providers have an opportunity to whack a QR code at the top right-hand side of the form that does that exact same thing. You know, I, I'm spending my time preparing a video that obviously it benefits me, but it massively benefits the product provider. You can't tell me that them doing something like that wouldn't benefit them as a, as a company, but also just they're wasting, not wasting their time. So there's, there's, I think there's, there's heaps of tech that us as advisors are leaning into, but the product providers could do more of that as well. Yeah, you mentioned QR codes, which is obviously uh, one of those things that I think uh, I think you guys talk about. That everybody in the country now knows how to use a QR code, uh, and those short little uh, t- you know educational t- 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 tutorial. I want to say <laughs> I got the wrong wrong word. Tutorial videos that just explain stuff. I think that's a that's a fantastic idea. Yeah. Now that uh, that leads in probably to the client experience being you know uh, the focus on client experience being you know such a big trend these days as in it kind of needs to be a, a no brainer instead of just doing stuff that's functional and it needs to be uh, pleasant from the client's point of view. Absolutely, and I think the the next stage of innovation for advisors is in the SOA space, um, the onboarding, the the nurturing. I think we we've got that. There's heaps of tools out there that really enhance that process. It's, it's the part now that advisors are under the microscope for, the advice. And, you know, the legislation states that that advice needs to be clear, concise and effective. I question that any advice docs that are out there are, do, are doing that. There are tools like Quilla that, that would be able to present a statement of advice in a way that is clear, concise and effective. I just don't think a 45-page document that is filled with detail that doesn't have much education in there is is meeting that requirement. This is where innovation can 
really change things for advisors. And this burden that we're feeling around making sure the client has informed consent, making sure they understand the advice, um, it's not putting more effort into the, the language of the SOA, it's putting the effort into how it's delivered. Now, there are advisors that are using PowerPoint presentations and that's that's definitely a step, but I think there's there's more to that. I think using tools like Quilla, um, and for anyone who doesn't know what that is, it's basically a website that is personalised per person. So you could create an SOA that is a website and you can dump in videos, links to articles, tables, graphs, and you can check the analytics of where that per, the viewer was up to on that website. Now, you can't tell me that's not the best way to see informed consent. We, we tested this and we we haven't really launched too much of it because I'm not sure if it's something that we can do. We started putting in funny sentences in parts of our SOAs, like, if you've read up to here, send me this SMS. Because we were getting people just sending back signed SOAs and that's that's great for, for time saving, but I have no way of confirming that client understood that advice. And just because they signed it, legislation states that that doesn't mean they did. So I think there's more we can do as advisors to make sure they're understanding the advice and therefore making the process much more engaging. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? The old uh, acknowledging the terms of the agreement, you know, like uh, tick the box or, or, or put a signature on the bottom without completely understanding. And uh, it's, it's certainly an interesting an interesting thing we're going to have to solve over the next uh, next few years, that's for sure. Hey, Hayley, thanks so much for coming and chatting us about tech trends. We look forward to catching you in the next episode. Thanks, Fraser. Welcome back to this episode, James. Thanks, man. Good to be back. <laughs> Good to have you back. Now, we're talking about tech trends in this particular episode, uh, all sorts of things from, you know, uh, the the concept of the new generation of digital natives that uh, that know nothing else. And uh, let's, I guess, let's start with the fact that we've actually come a long way, haven't we, in, into the technology space. We've sort of, you know, I've been, you know, geeking out about it for the last few, you know, number of years, but, but uh, you know, the last sort of 10 years, we've come a long way. Absolutely. You know, even those, I was talking to a, young um, provisional advisor the other day who was born in, where was he born? In 2002, I think he said. Was that right? That's, that po- that's entirely possible, mate. Yes. Some people, some people yeah, are born in that. years old, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and growing up with the internet is, is always uh, in, in technology and, you know, the whole paper-based or, or analogue world is just, is just, you know, weird to them. That's right. I mean, with, and um, one of the advice firms I work with, they actually – uh, actively pursue uh, cadet ad- advisors. So we've got, they've got four, I think, at the moment, and they're great on the um, on the tech, yeah, and the sponge on all the all the advice area. Absolutely, and then trying to trying to learn how to uh, deliver conversations. Tell us about tell us about technology in this trending space. Tell us about how important technology has been to the evolution of advice. Well, theoretically, we're supposed to be able to make advice easier and simpler to. To deliver, and I think it's taken a long time, and we've still got a way to go. Um, uh, the firms that have got that are entrenched to be able to deliver advice have spent significant, significant dollars in this space, and obviously there are firms that are seeing that they they have there's more to go. You know, the Bavaros who are purchasing advice firms looking at IntelliFlow coming to Australia or kind of are in Australia uh, and have spent a lot of money. Yep. Tell us about the importance of technology and data specifically to the future of businesses. Uh, Well, tech's the easy one. Data is is a bit more of a harder subject. We deal with data first. I don't think any advice firm or or even, dare I say, licensee still has a grasp on the value of the data that they have. And it's going to take a while before they realise that they do have the, da- the data sets that, they, that they're collecting um, could be worthwhile in running all sorts of rule sets through their practices um, and all their, the firms that they're licensing. Uh, there seems to be some people that have um, started to work on that. You know, if you look at people like Zeppo, for example, um, they're good at being able to automate process and also to gather data. Uh, Power BI is a great is a great tool that you can start to create your own dashboards if you wanted to. Uh, those sorts of techs, although they're not client facing, are helping advice firms know what their metrics are. 
And um, I guess that's pretty important from a firm point of view, but also a compliance point of view. Absolutely, yeah. You know, what is happening at each stage of the advice, be it, you know, FSGs, uh, FDSs, ongoing service agreements, well, that, that now rolls into, uh, FDSs now roll into ongoing service agreements, uh, to know where they're up to each part of that so that, you know, I think to try and run those sorts of things manually these days can open up to compliance issues. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, and data is such an important part. As you mentioned before, I think the, the value of a, of a business these days is going to be valued on their ability to create structured data more so than than their existing revenue and all the old the old ways that businesses, you know, used to be valued on multiples of income and those sorts of things. Yeah. And efficiencies have been able to create efficiencies within the practice, which in it in itself will give um, a better EBIT anyway. So that, so that if they do want to sell, there's an opportunity to be able to see that the business is run in an efficient way. Yep, yep. Now, one of the trends we've seen uh, um, uh, over the last few years is that the idea of this client experience, you know, the focus on there is easy and, you know, flawless client experience where the client doesn't have to, you know, put up with a lot of friction because um, obviously there was a lot of friction yeah. in the advice process. Uh, how, how do you see, where are we up to on this particular tech trend that, you know, the, the focus on client experience and, and where have we got to go? Uh, not very far is, is my, is my feelings about it. I think we've still got a long way to go. Yeah. Trying to try COVID's helped with regards to having online meetings. So that's, that's allowed the, um, the the ability to be able to connect quickly obviously having things like powerpoints now that are a bit more uh that can be integrated into those online meetings i know some firms that are using canva to be able to create templates in that area as well uh subject close to i know close to your heart is video presentations which i think that's if, if any if any space was going to grow that's going to be a space that's going to grow uh it's, been able to deliver that advice uh, in a succinct way that people can can see what's happening, have questions, and refer back to it in a very easy way instead of thumbing through, um, you know, a hundred page SOA. Yep, I couldn't agree more. Uh, how do you see things like um, QR codes coming into you know and using using like I, I guess um, I get the, the the analogy is that now everybody in Australia knows how to use a QR code, uh, whereas you know. Two years ago, we didn't um, talk to us about how that might, uh, you know, be a trend that um, practices could take on. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure that's true. When you're standing behind somebody who's trying to open their phone and you're trying to get in the door when they're trying to do do a QR code on the way in, what does it lead to follow or get out of the way? Um, yeah. yeah, well, I've seen advice firms. I, I think in the last podcast that I referred back to, uh, PDS has been uh, inserted into SOAs. Uh, one firm I know is using the QR codes in those SOAs so that if they have got the hard copy of the SOA, they can they can scan the QR code and go straight to the the, the, the PDS on that part of it. Yep. Uh, they've also uh, done away with having uh, business cards for their 30 plus employees and created a, a business card that has a QR code on it. So when you when you press it, when you go to the QR code, it goes to the whole. Um, uh, practice page, and uh, the the um, client or the person can can scroll through the the page and get the details of the person they're looking for. Probably a little bit easier when you when you got staff turnover and you can just update the page rather than having to print new cards. That's right. Uh, and how do you see the future of face to face versus online? Well, you t- for somebody who thinks that that that, that for a long time believed that face to face wasn't necessary, I think I've also learned been bunkered away inside a house and not been able to get out when you want to, that that there is that face to face face does have a role. You know, it simply does. Um, the nuances, uh, you know, people like you and I have learned to be able to catch nuances of people's expressions where somebody who hasn't done that and have been in the advice industry, it's very hard for them because video present video meetings are very very much different to a personal face-to-face meeting. Uh, and I, I think it's a learned thing to be able to find, to be able to get as much out of a video meeting as you do with a personal, but I think personal still has its place. Will it be, will it be as predominant as it was last time? Probably not. 
yeah, I think uh, I think you're right. You know, there, there is there's something to be said if you can meet somebody in person, uh, and then the secondary, or if you if you if you're catching up with them in an online meeting, it's it's still it's you know once you've met them, uh, it's okay. Um, yes. But yeah, just doing that whole uh, Zoom thing, it's it's you're right, it's difficult and mm. uh, it takes time. Yeah. Mm, absolutely, uh, James. Thanks so much for coming on to this particular episode. We look forward to catching up with you in the next one. Thank you. Ciao. Welcome back to the conversation, Cara. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Fantastic to have you here. We're talking about tech trends from all sorts of things, from uh, you know different uh, millennials now being digital natives, all the way through to some of the technology, the the trending technology being used. Uh, let's start with the concept of digital digital natives, people who have been brought up on the concept of we're now in the process, or you know we're now in a space where we just are used to using technology. Oh, absolutely, and I, I think um, you know what COVID's really shown us is that we're we're all have to be accepting of technology so much more than we ever have have before um, from there. And that, that, I guess, has made us think as a business, you know, if we kind of got it a bit wrong in the sense that we thought that our clients didn't want to use technology, say, before COVID, and now we've seen, well, actually, lots of people do. And then even, you know, surprisingly, a lot of older people do as well. It makes us think, well, what else did we get wrong? You know, what else can we look at as a business and, and, you know, make some changes and think about where else can we fit technology in or or just, you know, ultimately I think as a business we all need to make things less manual wherever possible. Um, and so, you know, we're just constantly looking looking at different opportunities where, wherever we can. Yeah, it makes me think of the Mythbusters uh, episodes of, you know, like to be able to say, it could be really, is this, a, is this true, this thing that we believe to be true for so long? And you're right, you know, there's so many times I've heard, many times I've heard, you know, well, what are my older clients who want blah, 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 um, assuming that they're not d- digital savvy? Yeah, well, I mean, we work with just such a wide variety of clients as well. You know, you just can't, you can't bustle into one group because, you know, there's just that much diversity in today's day and age. And, you know, I think that there still is, um, I guess, technology scepticism, you know, both from younger younger and older people. Like, you know, uh, I guess, um, you know, and there's that many um, scams and things that come through. Sometimes you do need to be really cautious about what you're signing up for, who you're giving your data to, um, you know, and what's, what's a legitimate email and what's something that somebody, you know, might be phishing or something along those lines. Um, from there. Yeah, there is. And that's a really big part of it, actually, the security. We sort of touched on security in the last episode, but really security is a, is a huge piece of this um, this moving jigsaw puzzle that is all the technology that we use. Uh, you know, the, the idea of, you know, clients sending wrong or sending or responding to emails that they think are from you or that you, you know, advisors responding to emails that they think are from clients, uh, you know, I think email is not a very secure thing, but um, yeah, security is a huge for, you know, a huge trend I think that we might be at the beginning of that might be getting bigger and bigger. Mm. Oh, you're absolutely right. And, you know, I, I think we do still rely on email a lot. I think that that kind of really is the easiest way to, to disseminate information um, from there. But, you know, again, you can share documents through the client portal. We've always got that, that access. Um, you know, and I think it's always good that wherever possible and, and certainly we encourage our technology technology providers to make sure that they've got two-factor authentication for any logins um, if they're there as well, you know, just making things more and more more secure. Certainly, we've um, had to look from our business in terms of the receiving end, you know, what is coming in from emails and always just making sure that that's aligning with the conversations we've had from clients, uh, you know, from there, you know, if they're, um, you know, is anything coming coming through, making sure that we just, you know, jump on the phone and just speak to the client, make sure it's in line with any conversations that, you know, or any actions that, that we've had. You know, I think that's just a big thought for perspective. Um, we, we did actually issue, it was a fair few years ago now, where we did receive a scam email from a client, um, well, from a, you know, from the client's email, um, you know, and we ultimately had to make good on that that withdrawal. So, you know, we're just certainly very conscious of never never making that mistake again. And I think that sort of fundamentally changed the way that we often do things in the business. You know, we've learned from that mistake, that's for sure. Yeah, it's, it's everywhere, isn't it? The um, email, uh, for those that, that aren't following along at home, email is, is very unsecure and, and can certainly be hacked and um, even, uh, mm. you know, Lawyers and professional services are, are certainly in the in 
you know, in that area where one of the most – somebody said to me the other day, one of the most profitable business models in the world is is, is hacking <laughs> to stealing data <laughs> at the moment. It seems to be like um, it's, a, it's a very profitable business for people. So uh, something well, that's that uh, we really need to be careful. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is, certainly. Talk to me about um, – while we're on security, talk to me about, about what you're doing in the practice with regards to teaching your staff and, and making sure all of your your, your – your processes and your, and your systems are secure? Uh, I mean, obviously, from um, like an IT perspective, you know, we engage with an IT professional to, to do a bit of an audit from time to time, you know, make sure that, you know, we've got the, the highest level security we can. I, I think it's also just a matter of making sure that you're working with really credible providers and good operators. Um, we introduced LastPass. Uh, the password manager website into our business a couple of years ago. And I think that's been a, a great addition um, for anybody that hasn't come across LastPass before. You know, it's an online website. Um, you, you, well, we pay for a sort of group subscription so that we can sort of have all the management and controls there. And then essentially you really only need to have one really strong password um, and then you can use literally often when I'm designing a password I just mash my keyboard randomly um, so that it's certainly nothing I would ever be able to remember or retain again um, and they can sort of auto generate passwords as well so you know I think um, as a business we have something like 120 passwords in our shared sort of main folder um, and, and what we can do from there as well is like I'm one of the administrators in the group, so I can set it so that, you know, only certain people can actually ever even see the password. Um, and then, you know, most of the staff, then they will just automatically flow through and they can log in, but they can't, you know, view it. They can't copy and paste it. Um, they can't save it. And again, then it's great, you know, if we've had new people join, we just add them in. If we've had anybody leave, then we just take them straight out. So it's been um, great just you know, really making that, that password process that much more secure. And clearly by the fact that we have 120, it shows that we work with a lot of different providers. You know, everyone obviously wants a password and a login and something these days. <laughs> so, you know, it's not going away anytime soon. I, I can only imagine what that number will be in a few more years. Yeah, I think that's great advice. Uh, pay pay for the uh, the better version where you do have those management controls because, uh, like any type of software, the free version doesn't necessarily do everything it's you know supposed to do. Oh, absolutely. I, I use it in my personal life as well. Like me and my wife have a have a shared account on there now, and you know, for anything personally, you know, we can just make sure that's in place. I actually even just thinking about this, I think that's great from a succession point of view. You know, if something happened to me. Um, then, you know, how people, you know, important people are going to be able to access, you know, my online banking, my trading accounts and, and things along those lines, you know, much more secure than having a piece of paper in a notebook in a drawer at home or something like that. Yes, for somebody to throw out and not realise what it was. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, t- tell me about data and the idea of structuring data. And, and you mentioned before that you use Power BI um, and, uh, and Zeppo. T- talk to me about the uh, how important structured data is to your business. I mean, it's incredibly important and I think it's just becoming more important because, you know, as a, as a business, I guess you just constantly need to be assessing, are we doing things in the most effective way and are we getting a return on our actions? Um, you know, and things like, like Power BI where you really can – Create what you want to see. You know, you have that much control over, um, over, I guess, the reports. You know, you can design them to be exactly what you want in terms of, okay, do I want to track um, output? Do I want to track meetings? Do I want to track attendance? Do I want to track conversion? Um, it, you know, you can sort of really make it, make it whatever you want. And again, you know, one of the things we've been doing is just looking at that and saying, okay, where are we getting our best um, return? You know, what should we be focusing our energy and our attention on? Because as, uh, you know, as things go on, I think it wouldn't be any surprise to, to a lot of, you know, advisors and practice managers out there that it's getting expensive to deliver the same outcome to clients. You know, compliance burden is going up, costs are going up. And, you know, we need to look at ways where we can really make sure that, you know, we can manage some of that. We don't have to just pass it on to clients. So, you know, looking at... Um, 
you know, looking at the best outcome is certainly always incredibly important. And yeah, Power BI has been, been great. So we've got, you know, a pretty kind of hands-on relationship there, um, you know, and we're just building on it as well, getting more reports, more, um, you know, more sort of data coming through. Wonderful. And now tell me about the idea of the client experience. There's been a lot of focus on uh, client journey and client experience as we've implemented software. Often we'll implement things that just work and they provide a system, but they might not be very mm-hmm. nice for the client. Um, how has that, how's that overlay been in your business? I think at the end of the day, we need to continuously be building on the client experience. You know, if, if the client's not enjoying the outcome and they're not getting value from it, well, they're not going to be very happy. Um, so I think the technology is there to just build and enhance that. And, and, you know, certainly say the use of Zoom, um, I, I think it's been a great addition. You know, one, we don't have to only work with clients in Perth. We can have much better relationships with people all over the country. Um, you know, hence having an advisor over in, in Sydney now as well. You know, it makes it that much easier to have a broad team. You know, we need to make sure that we're using technology in such a way that we don't lose what makes us special. You know, and I think where we really try to sit at TWD is to have a really high level of service and a really high level of value that we provide to our clients. Um, You know, I think certain meetings within our process work, certain meetings work better face-to-face and certain actually work better over Zoom because we use documents and we use screens quite a lot. Um, I've had a, a, what what we call a strategy meeting with the client this morning where we're going through their meeting, we're going through um, and educating them around different concepts and I generally suggest to clients that, um, you know, if, if they're comfortable and, you know, when they're sort of, you know, technology savvy that we do this one over Zoom, you know, one, it gets them nice and comfortable and it's just easier to have it nice and big in your control, be looking at the numbers, playing around with some of the variables there on the screen. It's, um, it, it, it just sort of makes things flow that much easier. And then, you know, obviously there's certain meetings that are that much better to do face-to-face where you do have to do a lot of physical signing. But, you know, that said, more and more is, can be signed digitally these days. Um, and, you know, I think more of the super funds and insurance companies, they'll, they'll get online with this more and more in the future as well. I certainly don't think we're there yet. Um, but, you know, times are changing pretty quick, so we'll just have to see how that rolls out. And then we can, you know, get, get DocuSign more involved. You know, currently we just use it for everything internal. But, you know, certainly as people are more accepting of it, then we want to roll that out as much as possible. Fantastic, Gary. Thanks for coming on and chatting to us about tech trends. I, I love what you're saying there. I love the fact that we were, we might be um, moving towards the uh, some some great things with technology coming up. Uh, look forward to catching you very soon. No worries. Thanks. Welcome back to this episode, Matt. Thanks, Fraser. Looking forward to it. Fantastic. We are talking tech trends, uh, all different things around trending. And obviously, you've done a lot of uh, stuff, and we sort of touched on some of the reports and surveys you've done previously. What what trends have you seen? Well, the first thing about trends is uh, we can always look backwards and we've got all sorts of fantastic stats and insights on what's happening uh, or what has happened. As far as looking forward, um, as you know, it's crystal balling. So some of it will be right, some of it will be wrong. But um, look, I think there's some really interesting things happening in the market at the moment. And we uh, we touched on it in the first episode, just around some of the key mega trends that are driving significant change across our industry, but also all industries. Um, and it might just be worth recapping on them really quickly. Uh, the first is just uh, COVID and the acceleration of tech adoption uh, and the fact that um, tech adoption really has fast forwarded, if you like, somewhere between five and 10 years. Uh, and that is the use of technology by business and the use of technology by consumers. Uh, and that's driving major change and, and changing behaviours. Uh, the second is the emerging affluent or the millennials with money and the fact that they are now a segment uh, for advisors that simply cannot be ignored. Um, and I'd love to chat more about that. Uh, and also just that digital wealth services have gone mainstream. So society's gone cashless or largely cashless. Um, all age groups are now paying uh, online. We're using PayPal. We're using Afterpay. Uh, we're tapping our phones instead of handing over money. Uh, and so people are becoming far more comfortable uh, with managing their money uh, online. And we're seeing a lot higher usage of uh, even our own mobile app where millennials and older clients are logging in once, twice a month to have a look at their balances and to have a look around at what's happening within their portfolio. So um, a big shift online. 
When it comes to actual advice technology, though, which is how do we support these changes in consumer behavior, um, one of the really big and, and I think really exciting trends at the moment is data. So how firms, licensees, and also practices are starting to understand the power of data within their businesses. So data probably is one of the biggest assets we all have, uh, and our industry is particularly lucky just with the amount of data that we start with. So uh, given the fact-finding process, we really do know a lot about our clients, in fact, more than most industries, uh, bar maybe the, the medical industry. Um, and that's a really good starting place, but there is a lot more that we can do. So um, there's data that we don't necessarily collect at the moment around uh, website visits, um, how often they're communicating with us, how often they're calling us, um, and how we can augment that data with property feeds and bank feeds, um, as well as feeds from uh, other enterprise solutions. So when, when we're chatting to advisors and, and the research that we're getting back is that data is becoming a, a, a really sort of critical component of um, certainly better advice firms. Um, and interestingly, through our advice tech research, um, if we look at the advice tech stars, um, so it's a term that I've probably referred to a few times now, they, these are advice firms that are adopting technology um, within their businesses at a higher rate than you sort of uh, industry average, but they're seeing real business outcomes as a result. So they've got higher EBITDA margins, they've got higher revenue growth, they've got better client satisfaction. So they're using technology really effectively. And if we think about um, data, Currently, 38% of advice tech stars are using some sort of data integration tool, but importantly, 38%, another 38% are intending to use it in the next 24 months. So you've got nearly 90% of these advice tech stars focused on data and looking at how they can really leverage the power of data. And there's two, two key areas that they're using data in. The first is whole of wealth reporting. So making sure that internally, they can collect as much data about their clients in an automated fashion. So it's things like insurance data, off-platform assets, clearly on-platform assets, pulling uh, data from the SMSF software, so class and BGL, getting the bank feeds that I touched on before, uh, but also seeing if they can tap into services like mortgage and loan um, uh, information. So being able to pull all that information in almost like a live balance sheet, if you like. So internally, that allows them to start to think about being proactive from advice rather than reactive. But equally, it also allows them to start to deliver great customer experiences because customers can leverage that data and for the first time see their whole picture, not just a subset of it. Um, so whole of wealth reporting, um, it's a big focus for us. It's a major strategic initiative, um, but we're seeing across the industry there's a real demand for it. The second area that we're seeing data being used and being leveraged in advice firms is through client analytics. So this is really the practice management stuff um, and trying to understand um, in a lot of detail in real time um, what's actually happening across the practice. So understanding what is my revenue per age bracket. So have I got a disproportionate amount in post-retirement versus the emerging affluent, as an example? Um, how much are these family groups actually earning me? Uh, what's my exposure to a different asset class or to my what's my exposure to a platform? So there's, there's so many um, different data points that you can get these days to really start to manage financial planning businesses like big businesses with real-time dashboards and insights. Um, and so that's really exciting. Um, and when you boil it down, all of that stuff allows you to effectively come back to proactive advice and generating what we call actionable insights in the future. So um, getting the data governance right, starting to build out your data capability uh, and then taking it to the next level in the future. Yeah, so 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 just on there's a lot of things I want to unpack with there because there was a lot of things, but uh, but just that data conversation, you know, we saw unbundling of products many many years ago from you know some 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 risk and some uh, some investment. There we saw unbundling of advice and um, you know the unbundling of advice and product, you know, separating those two, and now we're seeing this data and software unbundling so you know you i've heard you you talk about the you know mandating the idea of where you can store your data but then being able to use different software to then pull that data so instead of having that as one package to be able to unbundle that yeah and and you're absolutely right so we've got an internal sort of mantra if you like which is mandate data not software um and really what that means is that um the average advice tech uh, advice firm is using somewhere between 14 and 17 different bits of technology. Now, the better firms are using 17, which is really interesting, but it's a lower percentage of their total revenue because they're using efficiently, uh, whereas the industry average is around 14 uh, bits of tech in their tech stack. Uh, and that hasn't changed a lot year on year. What that does, though, is it creates a whole raft of issues. Um, and in particular, the issue that we're seeing is that data is being caught in silos. So you might have all of this really rich financial planning information in your planning software, but it can't be extracted or used in your CRM 
or a new marketing tools uh, or a new content delivery platform. So it's about how do you actually um, free the data, uh, put it into a common database um, so that you can actually then share it across the various systems but in an efficient way. And that's really where that that data integration technology becomes critical. Um, And not surprisingly, um, you know, that was a driving force behind our decision to invest uh, into Zeppo, which is a a data analytics platform and and CRM um, that uh, we bought 25% of uh, about eight months ago uh, and will no doubt increase our shareholding. We just see that as being a critical bit of tech uh, and it's a critical bit of um, tech that fits into the infrastructure and in many ways should actually sit as the foundational piece of everything else. Yeah, fantastic. So just uh, just to be clear there, a database, meaning structured data stored in a particular way, different, slightly different from CRM, which is your client relationship management system, which is which is something that you can use to, 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 to use the data and to store other information. So um, database different to CRM? Correct. Yeah, so CRM, um, so the database, probably not doing it justice, but uh, yep. d- data warehouse, data lake, whatever you want to call it, um, yep. it's, it's a separate um, repository for your data and that could be structured data or it could be unstructured data, which is things like website visits, traffic, um, social media posts and some of those things. Uh, but the idea is to pull it out of the software and then choose which software you push that data into, knowing that you've got a consistent data set across all different uh, technology um, parts. Yep, and that uh, that database, uh, data lake, data depository, whatever you want to call it, becomes yep. the source of truth. Absolutely. And that means, you know, hypothetically, if you're not happy with your CRM or you're not happy with your financial planning software, you simply remove it and put the new software in place, but knowing that you've still got the history and the data to support it. Yep, fantastic. That's a great way of explaining it. Now, uh, we've pretty much covered the uh, the COVID tech adoption and, and and you're absolutely right, the five to 10 year leap in, uh, in that, or some could call it just a five to 10 year catch up. Uh, that's sort of the way I sort of Correct. see it. We've, we're finally caught up. Um, uh, you mentioned cashless. It's an interesting point too, because um, obviously we still talk about things like videos and my kids don't know what videos are. They're like, what's a video? Um, uh, but, uh, you know, the, the whole idea of cash flow might even change to, to, to money flow because we're not actually seeing cash anymore. Yeah, it's, it's, um, I mean, the trend's fascinating and it, it really peaked, I think, recently when we saw Square uh, being bought, uh, sorry, Square buying Afterpay for $39 billion. Uh, and that really was, you know, an incredible deal and, and the largest deal in, in Australian history. Uh, but that was all around the millennial market, but it was all, re- all, all very much about the move to online and the importance of online payments in the future. So um, it's, it's certainly here and it's, it's not going away. Um, speaking of your kids, one of the things that concerns me greatly is that money has largely gone invisible. Um, and so back in the day when you and I uh, used to earn pocket money, uh, we used to get cash. You'd do a job and you got cash and it was tangible so you could understand the value of the money. In this day and age where the kids simply order dinner on the phone by pressing a button, you can order an Uber and pay for it via your phone, there's no real concept uh, of, of money. So how do we actually start to teach our kids really good money habits? Um, and it's, I think it's a challenge for all of us and it's, it's a really important one that we need to, to grapple as an industry. Yeah, it is, absolutely. Um, now, just while we're on these uh, trends before we move to the next episode, uh, Millennials with Money, um, to give us a quick overview of that, uh, that sector, that trend. Yeah, so millennials with money, uh, millennials have grown up. Uh, millennials are now actually sort of quite old. They're 37 to 40 years old. Um, they're highly educated. They're typically in senior management positions or executive roles. Uh, they've accumulated a lot of wealth. Um, so they've got a house worth more than a million dollars. They've got superannuation of around $250,000. Uh, they've got another investment uh, portfolio of somewhere in the vicinity of $250,000, million, uh, $250,000. $250, um, so they're really good financial planning clients in their own right. But what's really important is that they are digital natives. So they've always grown up with technology and have expectations of how they want to be serviced. But they've also more engaged with their finances and more financially literate and more financially capable than any other generation. So you've got this, um, what we think is around one and a half million um, sort of people that are looking for a coaching relationship or an advice relationship that are really well informed and wanting to improve themselves and become better investors and and, um, improve their general lifestyle. Um, So this is a segment that we think is critical that you can't ignore for the future. They will be your financial planning clients today or tomorrow. Uh, but we also think that they're going to be the main benefactors of the intergenerational wealth transfer that we've been talking about now for probably five to 10 years. Um, so if anyone does start to uh, think about, you know, what does my client look like in the future? 
that has to involve a digital service. Um, you have to have things like a client portal. You have to be able to talk to them across multiple channels uh, and communicate and live where they live, not where we've traditionally uh, lived or communicated. Yeah, you're absolutely right there. They put, they may even have some cryptocurrency in their portfolio as well. There's a very good chance of that. And there's a very good chance that they will talk to you in lingo that you don't understand. Uh, so I think what's really interesting is if you look at the likes of Reddit uh, and some of the trading boards on uh, Robin Hood, etc. Uh, they've created this whole lexicon, um, things like and emojis and memes uh, that support their trading. Now, I know that the regulator is having a, uh, a bit of a conniption around how they actually monitor and manage this uh, because there's um, influencers and people like Elon Musk, for example, that are driving the, uh, the price of Bitcoin sky high with a single tweet. Um, but um, some of my favorite that I've re- uh, read recently, so you've got rockets, which are pretty straightforward. So when a stock's taking off or about to go through the stratosphere, um, you've got someone that they call a diamond hand, which is uh, an investor that's happy to hold an asset, even if it's um, making a loss. Uh, you've got whales and so it goes on. But um, it's an interesting market. It's changing rapidly. But again, it's not something we can ignore. Fantastic. Uh, thank you, Matt, for coming on this particular episode and sharing your ideas on tech trends. We look forward to catching you in the next episode. Likewise. Speak then. 